All right, the book of Romans. This morning is going to be one of those Sundays. All right, hope your thinking caps are on. I have, uh, I said I would come back to this illustration, and I'm going to start with this as well. Um, in the last hour, I talked about how we as Christians sometimes like the concept of something, but we don't necessarily like the reality of something, correct? We like the concept of the Bible is the Word of God, it is inspired, it is my milk, it is my meat, but we don't like it in practice when it comes to, oh, that means I have to study it, I have to learn how to do this. Well, I think a lot of people love the idea of a church that is committed to the in-depth study of Scripture. That sounds so good to put on a website, right? Hey, we're committed to the in-depth teaching of Scripture. And everybody's like, amen, I like that. But when you actually engage in it, people are often like, well, wait a minute, that's not what I thought you meant. I thought you meant a 30-minute sermon with three points and a nice closing prayer. That's not the in-depth study of Scripture. That is a nice uh, outline. Right? Then the actual in-depth study of Scripture means you are digging into the Scripture and you are dealing and being confronted with a lot of difficulties and you're not afraid to do what? Ask questions. You're not afraid to... And listen, when you, when you engage in in-depth study of Scripture, you ha- have to understand this. And, and some of you, uh, you tell me this all the time. A lot of times you leave here feeling a little bit more confused than when you entered. And sometimes... You are, you are confused and you don't know what to believe for a little bit, right? Because we're dealing with difficult concepts. Well, we're in the book of Romans, people. You can't get much more complicated than this, all right? And today we have a major task. Because we're going to look, we're going we're gonna to look at the tale of two Abrahams, all right? The tale of two Abrahams. Now, I know you're like, wait a minute. Are you, there's two different Abrahams we're going to look at and why is it we're in the book of Romans? No, we're, we're going to focus on one man, Abraham, the one you learn about in Genesis, right? Very important man in the history of the Bible, yes? Okay, history of the world, okay? Abraham, the one God made a covenant with, from Abraham comes the, uh, the, you know, the entire nation of Israel, yes? The one that God made a covenant with, that through that covenant he was going to bless all the nations. A lot of important things dealt with Abraham, But in the New Testament, we really get the tale of two Abrahams. We have the Abraham of Romans, or we'll call him the Abraham of Paul, who's the author of Romans. And we have the Abraham of James. And if you look at that on the surface, you feel like the two Abrahams don't get along very well, right? You feel like the two Abrahams don't agree on much. Or we could say, we don't think Paul and James should probably ever be alone in a room together because they definitely don't agree theologically. And we have to try to figure this out. Now, I could do the easy thing, right? We're in Romans 4. I could mention Abraham. I could act like James doesn't exist. That's what a lot of pastors do. Some pastors may say, well, James says it this way, but it actually just means this. And then you're like, okay, that's what it means, but that's not studying the Bible. That's you just being willing to accept a surface-level answer. And you know what I feel about surface-level answers, right? They're useless. Because they don't really deal with that. They're not really giving you an answer. They're just, they're just pacifying you. But everyone walks out going, we studied the Bible in depth at my church. Woo, that was some in-depth teaching. Yeah, no, no, that wasn't. Because you like the concept, you don't like the reality. So by the time we're done today, you're not going to like the reality, all right? 
we're going to have to do a lot of work. So everybody ready? All right, go to Romans chapter 4. I hope you're ready. I didn't hear any amens, so, okay. If you're not, maybe the people listening online right now, maybe they're saying amen. <laughs> or they're, cl- or they're, they're, they're closing off their uh, phone right now. They're like, nope, I don't want to hear that. Okay, here we go. We're going to start with uh, Abraham number 1, all right, or the Abraham of Romans. Okay, go to Romans chapter 4. Now, I'm not, you notice I'm not reviewing anything from last week, correct? All right, so hopefully you remember last week, okay? Uh, but that, that's because the goal here, we're going to review this in a different way, you will see. Here we go. Romans chapter 4, let's start in verse 1. What shall we say then? That Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. Now, you know how hard it is for me to read and not start preaching, okay? But I'm, I'm going to try not to, right? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. All right? What would you say the major emphasis here is about this Abraham in Romans? That he was justified by faith apart from works. And everyone uh, who's not a Catholic would say, Amen. Well, Catholics would say amen, but they would understand it in a different way. Okay. But we would all say amen. We love that, right? Yes. Yes. I like that, Abraham. I'm justified by faith, not by works. That's good. Now, let's look at Abraham and James. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Everybody there? James 2, verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it, not ha- if, if it hath not works, is dead being alone." Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now here we come. Here comes Abraham number two. Was Abraham our father justified by, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Wait, what? What did we just read about the Abraham in Romans? He was justified by faith. The Abraham in James, we are told, is justified by works. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now look at this, verse 24. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only, or faith alone. 
Okay? Now, we're, we, we use that we're saved by faith alone, and then James says we're not saved by faith alone. How do we reconcile these two? Now, I can come in with the typical answer, but the typical answer typically destroys um, the entire doctrine of justification. So, we're going to work on this this morning, and we're going to do our very best. So, are you ready to, to dig in? That's a lot of work, yes? We got Romans, we got James. Do you agree on the surface they don't seem to agree? Both are using who to prove their point? Abraham. Paul uses it to prove what point? That we're justified without works, by faith. James uses Abraham to prove that we are justified by works and not by faith only. How can one man be used by two different people to try to prove two completely different points? Well, we, we, have, a lot of op- we have a couple of options here, right? So let's, just, let's just think about this before we dig in. All right. Does everyone agree that on the surface it appears to not make sense? Everybody should say amen. All right. So just from a very surface level, what are your options? Option number one would be to do what? It's a contradiction. Don't believe it. Well, that would go against the doctrine of inspiration. Yes. So we got to throw out that option unless we throw out the doctrine of inspiration. And you would think that if the doctrine of inspiration is true, or that even if the doctrine of inspiration is not true, that Christians, when the canon was being formed, someone would have thrown out James, right? Okay, you think someone would have said, nah, let's throw this out. So that means clearly that they were willing to deal with this because they believed James was authentic, yes? All right, so I think we, we, we can't, the contradiction thing doesn't really work for a lot of reasons, okay? What's the second thing we could do? Second thing, we could just preach Romans and forget James, and when we preach James, forget Romans. Okay? I've heard lots of sermons that do that, right? We can't do that, can we? It's got to be reconciled, right? Now, a third thing we could do is we could try to reconcile it with a simp- what, what appears to be a simple answer that pacifies everyone, but doesn't really solve the problem. Does everyone understand how that works? Sometimes when it comes to the biblical text, pastors do more pacifying than answering. To pacify just means, oh, here's, here's a little answer. And I, I see y'all do it with your kids all the time. They'll be asking or crying about something and you just throw something out there just to pacify. You don't really, you're not going to really fix the problem. You're not really going to solve the problem. They're not going to get to actually do what they want to do. You just throw some nonsense out to pacify them. And then when they walk away, I'll bring them to the signs like your parents are pacifying you. You need to fight for truth and not for, for, for their, their, their lies. Okay. And, and, then, and then, you know, then you get mad at me. No, okay. But you, you get the idea, right? Everybody understand how to be, you can be pacified? You don't want a pastor who pacifies you with a simple answer. You want to figure it out. Now, to figure it out, it's going to require, by the time we're done today, we may leave here more confused than we started, but that's part of the process. All right? So, are you ready? Here we go. Oh, boy, this is going to be fun. All right? Let's begin first with a fundamental principle that I have now taught you about a million times, but I'm going to repeat it again, and this will give us a chance to review a little bit of Romans 4. Here is the principle that you, if you write anything down this morning, write this principle down, because this is going to be the principle which we operate from. And that principle has to be this. Are you ready? This is the way I have it written down in my notes. What is clear in Scripture must become the key to interpreting what 
isn't. What is clear in Scripture must become the key to understanding what isn't clear. All right? We've got to determine what is the clear teaching about justification because James is talking about justification. Everyone should say, amen. Romans is talking about justification. Everyone should say, amen. Now, we've got to determine what is clear about justification because what is clear about justification becomes the key because this is, listen to me, this is very important. You cannot come up with an answer, right, that destroys what is clearly taught. In other words, James is confusing. Everyone should say, Amen. I cannot come up with an answer for James that literally destroys the clear teaching in the New Testament on the doctrine of justification. I cannot do that. And I will argue that what most... In fact, there's commentary up there in Romans. I've got commentaries everywhere on Romans. Um, Every commentary you look at... in In fact, we spent, what, six weeks... I don't know, maybe even longer, going through an entire book that tried to give us all these kinds of answers. And when we got done, we came up with an answer that none of the... Because the book, what was the book constantly doing? Giving you an answer to these problems that literally destroyed the doctrine of justification. Now, they don't think it does, but it does if you think about it. So we cannot do that. What is clear becomes the key. Yes? So what is clear when it comes to the doctrine of justification? Well, let's go back to Romans and try to get some of the clear points. All right? Let's go back to Romans. We're going we're gonna to do like a quick review. Go to Romans 3.24. Romans 3.24. Being justified free... And please note, let, let's, this is very important. Now, you're not going to understand this, the importance of this right now, but just go ahead and remember this. When it comes to what kind of justification Paul is dealing with in Romans, there is no question, right? Because what preceded this, uh, when we get to verse uh, 24, what came before it? Starting in verse 9 all the way down. What was the discussion about from verse 9 all the way down uh, to verse 23? Sin, 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 sin. Yes? Yes, it's all about sin. Do we need to go back and read it? How does verse 23 end? For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. So what is Paul dealing with? He's dealing with your problem and my problem. God is holy. I'm a sinner. How can I be just before God? Clearly it has to be a... A a soteriological justification clearly has to be a justification dealing with God because the preceding verses are all about sin. Now, this is very key to interpreting this, okay? Then, what what is the first thing he tells us about justification in verse 24? Being justified freely by his grace. So, let's write this down. How are we justified? Freely. Number two, how are we justified? By grace. We are justified freely. We are justified by his grace. Please keep this in mind because this is clear, right? All right. Does this contradict uh, James? On surface, it clearly does. James says it's not free. I got to do something. He doesn't even mention God's grace, does he? He doesn't mention God's grace. He mentions our works. What else do we learn? Being justified freely, number one. Number two, by his grace. Number three. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The third way we are justified is by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And what does it mean to redeem? 
a pay a a purchase price. Christ paid a price to buy us, to to redeem us. And we, we, again, we don't go with the ransom theory of of redemption that is taught in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. No, we go with the, uh, I think the correct way is who is God, who does Christ have to satisfy? God. He's got to pay a price. He's got to satisfy God because God the Father is upset, so he sends God the Son because God the Son is the only one who can satisfy ultimately the demands of God, right? One God, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal. Okay, we can get into the little Trinitarian idea. All right, so make sure we understand that. Redemption is key. We have been purchased. Who purchased us? Christ. Did it have anything to do with you, what you did? He purchased me. I don't purchase him. If, my, if I'm redeemed and justified by him redeeming me, he paid the price, so what do I have to pay? What's the answer? Nothing. It's already been paid. All right, so far so good. All right, next. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Romans 3, 25. What do we learn about justification in 25? Whom God hath set forth, who is he speaking of? Christ. To be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. All right, our justification... What's another clear teaching about our justification? It's dependent upon propitiation. What does propitiation mean? We, you probably know the Greek word. I gave it to you, but if you don't remember the Greek word, that's okay. What does it mean? Okay, it can, it can be translated the lid of the mercy seat, yes. To satisfy, remember? To satisfy... What does Christ, Christ is our propitiation. What does he satisfy? The wrath of God. God is holy. His wrath has to be poured out on sin. Christ becomes my propitiation. He satisfies that wrath on whose behalf? Ours. That's why the word is translated mercy seat in Hebrews, because remember how the mercy seat worked? Look at the symbolic idea. God looks down from heaven. What's inside the Ark of the Covenant? The broken tablets of the law. God sees the broken law representative of us breaking God's law. And what do we deserve? Wrath. The mercy seat sits on top of it. And what's placed on top of that mercy seat? The blood. And that blood covers or satisfies God's wrath. And I only did so for a temporary point of time in the Old Testament. But Christ is our mercy seat. He propitiates God's wrath forever. And if... He did it, so what do I have to do? Nothing. All right? This is a clear teaching of justification. Agreed? When you're using terms propitiation, you're using terms redeemed. Clearly, there's no question what kind of justification Paul is talking about. He is talking about a soteriological justification where I'm justified before a holy God. That is, there can be no argument about that. All right? How about Romans 3.28? What's the next thing we learn? Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. How am I justified? By faith. Now, I'm not going to have time to go back and review all of these like I typically do. So, hopefully you're getting these down. How am I justified? By faith. How am I justified? By faith. By faith. Now, we would argue in Ephesians 2 that even our faith 
is a gift from God, that we can't naturally produce that faith. God has to put the faith in us, which I know separates us from uh, probably a non-reformed perspective, but that's, that's neither here nor there. The issue is faith, not works, right? Believing. Agreed? We can get to a whole discussion about the other, well, we will when we get later on to Romans. Then we go to Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what saith the scripture? Now here, Paul is going to pull from the life of Abraham and is going to pull from a specific time in the life of Abraham, which will become more pertinent as we get through. But what is he going to teach us? How was Abraham, what happened to Abraham? He believed God. Everybody see that? And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Counted. Circle the word counted because that's a very important word. Counted. Anybody know what the Greek word is there? Logizomai. Logizomai is the Greek word. Anybody know what logizomai means? Okay, you're getting there? All right. Logizomai, I'll let you look it up. Okay, credited. All right, now that's getting the idea. All right, it means to reckon, to count, to compute, to calculate, to count over, to take into account, to pass to one's account, to impute. Now that's a key word, impute. That's the theological term, impute. Now remember, we can get to a long theological study of imputation. Let me go through it quickly. How does imputation work? Okay, Adam and Eve sinned, correct? Their guilt is imputed or accredited to whose account? All of ours. Isn't that no fair? I hate that, don't you? Man, I didn't do anything wrong. Why should I be guilty in Adam? That's messed up. That's imputation. It's accredited to my account. Did I commit the sin? No, but his sin is accredited to, his, uh, his guilt is passed on to all of us because we're all guilty in Adam. It's imputed to us. We don't like that. Now, I sin, you sin, we all sin all the time. Here's the good thing. Guess what happens? Our sin is imputed to Christ. That seems not fair, right? Now, he propitiates, God's wrath is poured out on that sin. He satisfies God's wrath. Now, there's a third form of imputation. When I put my faith in Christ, guess what is imputed to me? Righteousness. A righteousness that is not my own. It's an alien righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. It's imputed to my account. Do I become righteous? Okay, let me make this very clear. Remember, the entire Protestant Reformation comes down to two words. Infused and imputed. Catholicism teaches that we are infused with the righteousness that I cooperate with, and if I cooperate it with long enough, and I can die in a state of grace, good enough, I'll get to purgatory. Whew, good. Whew, purgatory. Right? And I, whew, I'm, I'm shooting for purgatory, right? Because I don't want to go to hell. Then in purgatory, I get purged that I can ultimately get to heaven. That's, that's because we're cooperating with the righteousness, and we've got to hopefully die in a state of grace. The Protestants said, no, 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 no. We are not infused with righteousness. 
It's imputed. It's accredited to my account. I am declared righteous even though I am not righteous. I am not made righteous. I am declared righteous. And right there in Romans, we get the idea. Abraham did what? He believed. Now, that text in Romans 4 is quoting from Genesis 15. Why is this critical? Now, we're going to talk about this in more, in, in more depth, but I'm going to go ahead and give you a preview. It was before what two things? Circumcision and offering up of Isaac. So before these two things occur, he believes God and he is counted righteous. Righteousness is accredited to his account, is imputed to his account by faith. He is declared to be righteous. He isn't righteous. He is declared to be righteous. Does that make sense? So my, my, my justification is dependent upon what? And an imputed righteousness. Now, Go through all the things we just gave you about justification. Did y'all write them down? All right. Number one, we're justified freely. Number two, by grace. Number three, because of the redemption of Christ. Number four, propitiation. Christ propitiated, satisfied the wrath of God on my behalf. Next, by faith. Next, the last one we just covered. By Christ's righteousness being imputed. By an imputed righteousness. Just put down imputed righteousness. Just put down imputed righteousness. Abraham believed and he was counted righteous. Did he? He wasn't counted righteous because of what he did. He was counted righteous because he believed. Now that is the clear teaching. And this is counted, this is seen throughout the New Testament. Yes? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. How are we saved? By grace through faith. Not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast, right? It's all done because of Christ. Christ, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why should he not perish? Because the death of Christ, by believing in him, we are counted righteous. We are declared just. Not because we're good people, but because of a righteousness that's imputed to our account. And when we talk about the doctrine of justification, we can talk about some other things. What's imputed with that righteousness comes what other things? The active and passive obedience of Christ imputed to our account. So far, so good. This is the clear teaching. So what do we have to do? We've got to take the clear teaching, and what does that that have to become? The key, the key to our interpretation. Now, jump over to James. All right, we, we, we did that. All right, good. We accomplished one thing. All right, now, everyone in this church should know this. Before you can interpret a passage, what's the, what's the principle? Before you can interpret a passage, you have to observe a passage. Your observation must precede your interpretation and the quality of your interpretation is dependent upon the quality of your observation. So guess what this morning is going to be about? Observation. Observation. Now, I, I've typed... I was still typing this morning. I've got... I don't know how many pages of notes. Okay? I've got so many things here that we could be here forever. So don't... But don't... No fear. Because we're only working on... 
observation. We're only working on James, right? James could take us a couple of years, okay? But, so, so you'll be out here before you're 40, okay? So, all right, but, okay. And, and no, I don't believe in clocks, okay? They're, they're a work of Satan, okay? So, we're going we're gonna to do a lot of observation here. A lot of observation. And we're going to ask lots of questions. So take good notes. If you get confused, don't ask me. No, okay, if you get confused, now raise your hand and I'll do my best to try to help us out, all right? But I, is Romans clear? Yeah. Uh, we think so. I agree. We think so, right? Since the, uh, now, Catholics would have a different perspective. I understand it. But I, I think they have a hard time working around the clear language. The language is pretty clear. James is where we have our problems, right? Romans is where the Catholics would have a, a problem. James is where we have our problem. And guess what both sides do with the problematic passage? Oh, it's simple. It's this. There you go. Okay, everyone does that, and we, we don't do that. We're going to deal with the problems. Here we go. You ready? All right, I'm in Romans, so I can't help you yet. Let me get to James. James chapter 2. All right, verse 14. Remember, observation, 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 okay? I'm going to want to start preaching it and interpreting it, but I'm going to try to be careful, right? James chapter 2, verse 14. When you look at verse 14, what do you see? How many questions uh, show up in verse 14? Two questions. Would everyone agree that there are two questions in verse 14? What's question number one? What doth it profit, my brethren? What doth it profit, my brethren? Though, man, though a man say he hath faith and have not works. All right, now this is important. He's wanting to understand what, what profit is there. What is the profit? Now keep that in mind. I, and the reason I'm going to try to focus so much on observation is because, and, and just keep this in mind. I kept emphasizing that what Paul was dealing with in Romans and used Abraham for was to demonstrate justification before God. Yeah, agreed? And I proved that by looking at the passages before it, which demonstrated what? We're all sinners. So clearly, it's not talking about justification before Bobby. Right? If I'm a sinner, my problem is sin. He made that clear in Romans. Then Bobby, if I'm justified before Bobby, that doesn't help me with my sin, right? Bobby can say, hey, man, you're righteous. You're godly. You're great. It doesn't matter because my problem is sin. Now, well, the reason I'm emphasizing that is because as we observe James, we have to look for any indicators that maybe this is something different. Right? Now, I know I'm kind of, I'm throwing in kind of a presupposition there. So that's really bad that's really bad. I know that's what preachers typically do, so I don't want to I don't want to lead you to I'm not trying to lead you there. I want us to kind of struggle together. But to be fair, that's what I'm just I'll let you know right from the start what I'm trying to do. Is there anything in James that tells me, "Wait, wait, 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 wait. This is a whole different subject." And he starts off by asking, "What what what profit? What profit? Well, profit before whom?" Right? Profit before God? Well, according to Romans, God does it all. Yes? So, what profit doth it, uh, uh, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? And then what's the second question? Can faith save him? Can faith 
save him. Now, when we read the word save, we immediately begin to think of what? Salvation. Salvation. Soteriology, right? We, we begin to think of this in a salvific way. Okay, he's talking about, can faith save me before God? Now, he may be saying that. Right? I think the Greek word there for save, is it so, soza? Soza? Right? And uh, it, can mean, it means deliverance, basically. Right? Am I? I'm just save. going... Right, so rescue. Now that that sounds like salvation, yes. Okay, but so make sure we start with two questions. What are the two questions? What does it profit? Can faith save him? And in both in both questions, there's an implied answer. Yes. What's the implied answer to uh, what does it profit? There is no profit if there's no works, right? And what does uh, what's the implied answer? Can faith save him? They imply it as no, right? It can't save you, right? Now, that's, that's radical because in Romans, we just heard that it does. Not that it can, it does. So that, that gives me kind of a red flag that maybe there's something going on here because it can't be that diametrically opposed to Romans, right? So let's, let's see what they do here, all right? So we see, a, we see two questions. Everyone agree? Now, here's what James is going to do. Here's, here's the way I see it. Starting in verse 15, James is going to use some illustrations to prove or kind of answer these questions. All right? Agreed? All right? Oh, well, you may not agree, but we'll see. All right? Here's, what's illustration number one? Look at verses 15 to 17. What illustration does he use in James 2, 15 through 17? He's going to use the illustration of a needy person. Yes? Is that a fair way of calling it? All right? He's going to use the illustration of people in need. I think that's the way I put it. Yeah, people in need. All right? He's going to use this illustration of people in need. Now, please note, what's he talking about? What does it profit? Now, he's going to demonstrate profit. Now, who is this profit for in this particular case? Needy people. If a needy person comes up and says, hey, hey, I mean, if someone walked through this door right now, which it happens a lot out here, right? We'll have someone come in here and, and usually need money for something, right? And they come in and they need something, right? And we're like, well, I'm sorry, you don't have uh, any rent, so you're going to lose, you know, you're going to get kicked out of your apartment. You have no food. Your baby hasn't eaten in two days. Okay, well, we'll pray for you. See you later. We have faith. We believe in God. Now, did that profit them? Did not profit them. Agreed? Now, who's the profit for? The people. Has nothing to do before God at this point, right? In fact, that he, that's the illustration. Would you agree? Let me read it carefully. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and any of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? And what's the answer? It doesn't. There's no profit to whom? For people. Agreed? All right. I think, that, I think that's important. And then uh, what does he say in verse 17? Now, please note, he takes the illustration he just gave and he applies it. Even so, faith, if it have not works, is dead being alone. Now, what does it mean to be dead? 
Now, we, we, yeah, now, th- Bobby just said, not alive. Now, sometimes that's how we contrast dead, meaning not alive. Could dead have a different meaning? What is the Greek word there for dead? A necros, okay. All right. And what's some of the possible meanings? All right. And active and inoperable, okay? In other words, it's what? Useless. Now, useless in what way? Right? Now, you see? Now, in this particular illustration, that your faith, you can have all the faith in the world, but it was useless to the people who just walked through the door and needed something. It's not, it's not profitable, and my faith is dead to them. It doesn't matter. I can, they can say, oh, that's a church, and they believe in Jesus, and they have a cross, and they sing hymns, and they carry Bibles. Okay, yes, let's go get them for help. Right? Well, all of our faith becomes useless to them, right? It's dead to them. It's inoperable. It's inactive. Now, I'm not saying this is the correct interpretation. I know we're supposed to be doing observation, but I want you, I'm trying to make you observe what James is emphasizing. What's his emphasis here? Profit, right? Profit, and does it deliver, does it do anything, right? Does it profit, does it do anything? And the first illustration, it has to do with whom? People. Before people, it's useless. Before people, it's no profit. There's no profit. It doesn't benefit. It's dead. It's useless. It's inoperable. So far, so good? Yes? What, what does Paul not ask for in Romans? He doesn't ask for any of these things, right? He doesn't say you've got to feed people. He doesn't say you have to do anything. What does he say you need to do? Believe, and then who does all of it? God. God does it all. But... Paul is focused on who, being justified before whom? Before God. James possibly is emphasizing the prophet before others, to others, being alive to others. Possibly. I'm just throwing the concept out. All right, what's the second illustration he uses? Verse 18. All right, now he's going to use this illustration of... of, of kind of a man in his words. I don't know how else to describe it. A man in his words. Because what does he say in verse, the beginning of 18? Yay, a man say, or some will say, which is the same thing, all right? You can say, I'm just going to say a man or say, or, or people can say. Here's someone, here's this hypothetical person who comes up and says, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. But again, who, who's, who's the emphasis here? Is God the emphasis here? This is between people, right? This is between people. This is, this is Emma walking into the house. Hey, mom and dad, you claim to have faith? Wait, show me your faith by your works. That, that's who wanting justification. Who, who is wanting some kind of proof? Emma's wanting the proof. And the parents could say, we have faith, we believe. And Emma's like, mm, I, no, no. Show me, right? Missouri, show me, right? 
That's, that's what, but it's about people. What's not been brought into and, and involved in this yet? God. This is someone coming up. So, so this is someone questioning. Oh, you say you have faith. Well, show me your faith by my works. Show me your faith. Or I will show you my faith by my works. It's, it's a, it's, I think that, would you agree that's the emphasis here so far? Okay. I'm, I'm hoping, all right? What's the third? So the first illustration is people in need. Second is people in words. People challenging. It's, it's people in a challenge. It's a person in a challenge, however you want to describe it. What's the third illustration? Verses 19 and 20. Now, so make sure you understand there is some dispute here. You know, in the, in the, uh, remember in the original, what is not in the original? Punctuation, right? Okay, uh, verse 18 in the, in the English Bibles end with what? A period. Does the NIV have a period? Uh-huh. Yes, okay. That's how most English translations do that. Some argue this thought should not stop there, and that 19 really continues this, this person coming to someone making this argument, right? Some would try to translate it that way, but we're just going to separate it and use it as a third illustration. What's the illustration in verse 19? He's going to use demons. Demons, right? And what does he say here? Uh, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Right? What's his point here? You believe in God, so does Satan. But again, this is an argument about who? Amongst people. This is a person coming to you, right? This is a person coming to you going, hey, you believe in God? Well, big deal. Satan, the demons believe in God and they tremble. So what difference does it make? It doesn't what? Demonstrate anything. And in fact, he re-emphasizes the point in the very next verse because what does he say? But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Right? It's, it's like this argument with, with this person trying to make this point. And what does he want you to see? That your faith without works is dead, but it's dead for whom? The person in need and the person looking for proof. Let me say that again. Faith without works is dead, and it's dead in the sense that it's inoperable and it's not profitable for whom? The person in need and the person looking for proof. Faith without works is dead to whom? The person in need and the person looking for proof. Who has not been brought into this conversation at all? God has not been brought into this conversation. Would you agree that's a fair reading of the text? If you disagree, please, please talk to Sarah, okay? Right. I'm joking, all right. Yes? Now, uh, probably who knows how many people are listening online. I'm going to get home. My email box is going to be filled with people going, no, you're wrong. Okay, but I'm trying to get a fair rendering of the text. Yes, so far so good. All right. Now, what happens next? He goes to his fourth illustration, right? Illustration number one is people in need. Uh, Illustration number two, we can call it people in words. Illustration number three, the illustration of demons. And then that brings us to number four. And who does James brings into this entire discussion? Good old Abraham. Oh boy, James, why did you have to? If he left Abraham out of this, it would possibly be easier, right? Maybe. 
Maybe it'd be more difficult. Or maybe him using Abraham is the key to unlocking the whole confusion. Maybe. All right. Let's see what he does. He's going to bring in Abraham. Everybody ready? Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Stop right there. Okay. Now, let's ask a question. He starts with an event, if my math is right, which it probably isn't, it's at least, I believe, 20 years after what Paul, where Paul begins the story with Abraham. Paul begins the story with Abraham in Genesis 15. Look up where uh, Abraham offers up Isaac in Genesis. Now, 17, I think, is circumcision, if I remember correctly. Yeah, okay, we spent last week looking at it, okay. 22. We have a lot of years that pass. A lot of years that pass. Now, in 15, God declares him to be what? Righteous. Go look at, I think it's Genesis 15, 6. I believe it's Genesis 15, 6. You can verify that I'm right or if I'm wrong. All right, okay, and what does it say? In, uh, read it from Genesis, not from Paul. Read it from Genesis. Yeah, his name had not even been changed to Abraham yet, had it? Yeah, okay, Abram, yeah. Abram believed. Credited. How did yours? Counted. Counted. Okay. So, so, in other words, Paul is not adding some new theological language. He's using the language of Genesis. In Genesis 15, here's Abram. He believes, and he's counted or imputed, accredited to, to be righteous. James picks up the story in Genesis 22. And he says, hey, wasn't Abraham justified? You're like, hey, whoa, James. James, you're, you're, you're starting at the wrong starting point. Abraham was already justified. So can, can James be dealing with the same justification? What would be a pretty good answer there? Doesn't make sense. Question, Hebrews chapter 11. What is Hebrews chapter 11? Is Abraham mentioned in Genesis 15? Or in Genesis 15? In uh, Hebrews 11? Okay. Um, and Hebrews 11 is all about demonstrating what? Faith. Now, how does, uh, how does Hebrews 11 begin? Okay. All right. Give me a second. Or go to... Uh, yeah, go to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. Hebrews 11 is all about faith, correct? And it names all of these people, correct? And it says, by faith, and it says what they did, correct? And then chapter 12 says what? Chapter 12, starting in verse 1. We're surrounded by great crowd of witnesses. or cloud, Yeah, great a cloud of witnesses, all right? Now, some believe that that cloud of witnesses is referring to whom? the people before us. They are a, a, a great witness and we learn from them, yes? Correct? 
They are an example of faith. And in Hebrews 11, what example of faith does the writer of Hebrews, we don't know if it's Paul, right? Okay. I, I, I had a, a seminary professor one time said that anyone who believes Paul's the author of Hebrews is a cop. <laughs> yes, I don't know exactly what he meant by that. But, okay. So, in other words, I guess he, he didn't, didn't like the police and believed it couldn't be trusted. Right? You can't trust anyone who believes that, okay? which is my daughter. You can't believe her. Because, all right. So, because Becca argues that Hebrews is written by Paul. All right. So, what, what event in uh, Paul, Abraham's life does the writer of Hebrews use to demonstrate Abraham's faith? Okay, does it offer anything else? Okay, anything else? Okay, any more? Okay, any more? Yes, sir. So it doesn't mention... Wouldn't it have been great if he did? Because if he did, we could have go, oh, see? What's his, his, his action was evidence to whom? Us. It ju- he, he justified his faith to us. I wish it was in Hebrews 11 because we could resolve the conflict. Wouldn't it be great? He doesn't mention it. I wish it was. I wish it was, but it's not there. I wanted you to go through it because I wanted you to see that, hey, that a lot of, a lot of people try to make this kind of argument, but it's literally not there. I wish it was there. Oh, I wish it was there. Writer of Hebrews, could you have helped me out? Okay. What does it say? Uh-huh. Now do y'all see it? So y'all were telling me it was not there. Is it there or not there? I'm going to make sure everyone's on the same page here. Okay, give me the verses. 17 through 19. I want everyone to look now and see if everyone sees it now. I was hoping someone was going to say, yes, it is there. Okay, I was hoping... I want everyone to look at it. Hebrews 11. Everybody see it? By faith. Now everybody see it? And then what does it say? Well, no, we don't have... All we need to determine is that it's mentioned. Because Hebrews is all about these people's faith... And their faith, their actions demonstrated they have faith. And, and the writer of Hebrews is using the whole chapter to demonstrate what to us? These are witnesses. These are a witness and they, they testify to us what faith is. They demonstrate faith. How, but they're demonstrating their faith to whom? To us. To us. By what they did. How do we see their faith? By what they did. How do we see their faith? By what they did. We see their faith by what they did. Does everybody see that? All right, now, go back. Let's read it again because uh, people on the internet may get all confused that I was saying it wasn't there and they were like, no, it is there. Okay, I was doing that on purpose. All right, go to Hebrews chapter 11. What are the verses again? 
start in verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Please note, only begotten. It wasn't his only son. Begotten, that's a very important one, understanding how Christ is the only begotten son. Okay. Um, of whom it was called, uh, uh, of whom it was called, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. All right. James jumps to this account. And he says that Abraham was what by this account? No, no. Go look at James. I don't have time now to play like you're right. Okay, I, I, now I have to get, get, be more specific. He was justified. He was justified. Now, we can understand justification in what way? Now, is that true that one can be justified before God and one can be justified before people? I think there's, there's, it's, there's two different ways, right? How, how am I going to be justified before a person? By what they see. Remember, what's, what's James' whole emphasis here? Here's someone who's what? In need. How is my faith going to be justified before them? By doing something. What good is my faith to them if I just say, go away? Not if I even say, I'll pray for you. They need something. Don't pray for what they need. Give them what they need. You be the answer to the prayer. Okay, right? right? It's always great. I'll pray for you. I'm not going to do anything for you, but I'll pray for you. What? Do something. Do something, right? Okay, because your faith is in dead. And then the second group of people are the people who are what? Wanting proof. Wanting proof. So then what does James do? He's like, okay, let's look at Abraham. How was Abraham justified? Justified by, uh, uh, among, uh, from whom? Among people. That is the possible way to get around this whole problem. That Abraham's actions did not justify him before God. And how do we know it's not justifying before God? He was already declared righteous in Genesis 15. So the justification here in James is that Abraham was justified before men by offering up Isaac. And how do we know this? Because that very story is then put in Hebrews. Is it there? Yes, okay, it is there, right? Is it there? Okay, right? Now, if it wasn't there, then guess what? I'd be like, oh, man. No. Come on. I need it there. Because if it's there, then guess what I have? The writer of Hebrews, like, hey, guys, you want to see faith? The, their actions justified their faith. Before whom? Because none of those people mentioned in Hebrews were perfect. In fact, many of their works would do what? Condemn them not only, but definitely condemn them before God because how many sins do you have to commit to be guilty of all the law before God? They all commit big ones. I mean, Abraham lies multiple times. Hey, that's not my wife, that's my sister. You, you, I have nothing to do. Hey, Abraham, you're lying, right? Yes? Okay? They all sin. So, but they did things at times that demonstrated that they did have faith in spite of their failure. So it, and I'm just going to throw this out and we'll stop. From a theoretical, and this is a theory. I'm just throwing this out as a theory. 
Here's my theory. Paul is giving us a doctrinal lesson, a theological lesson on justification before God. James is saying, hey, you can be justified and have faith, but guess what? Before people, guess what it amounts to? Guess what it accomplishes? Nothing if all you have is faith. You've got to do something. You've got to act. And who does he bring into the picture? Abraham. Where does he start with Abraham? 20 years after Abraham was already declared to be righteous. 20 years later. And 20 years later, what story does he jump to? The sacrifice of Isaac, which just so happens to be the story that the writer of Hebrews uses to say, hey everyone, here is faith in action. Therefore, that story is used to justify Abraham's faith before whom? Every person who would ever read the Bible. It's a just, that's my theory. If if my theory is wrong, then we got to come up with another solution. And what's the typical solution offered? What's the typical solution offered in almost every commentary in almost every church? They don't go with what I just did. No, No, the answer they give. There's always an answer they give. Everybody remember the answer? The typical answer in most churches is this. Okay, it goes something like this. Yes, you believe God. Yes, you're declared righteous uh, before God by faith. But, they throw in a big but, you will have to do A, B, C, D. You will have to do works because your works will either prove that you are saved or prove that you're not saved, which then becomes basically what? That you have to, you're justified according to what? How do you know if you're saved? You got to look at your works. And then hopefully I have enough to prove that I'm saved. It's the only difference is one says you have to do works to be saved. They just come along and just change the language saying, well, no, you don't have to do works to be saved. You have to do works to prove you are saved, which is literally saying the same thing. Right? Because now I've got to spend my life going, okay, do I have enough works? Do I have enough works? Okay, and what should I be looking to for my salvation? Not my work, the work of Christ. My way is saying, no, look, yes, Bobby, you're justified before God, but guess what? Your faith is useless if it doesn't do anything for the people in need and for the people in prove. You're not justified before anyone unless you do something. If your faith doesn't do anything, you're not, you're not justified in the sight of anyone. It's a useless faith. Now, will it save? That's the question. Now, according to Corinthians, we will be judged according to our works. And if all of our works burn up, Yeah, we'll have to come into that passage. That, so you see, my, my, my off, what I'm offering up is a different approach than what's typically offered up. Because I believe the other approaches do what to justification? They destroy justification. Because now justification, how, how, what proves my justification? My works. What should prove my justification? The work of Christ. And what did we list all those things? How am I justified? Freely. By grace. The redemption. Propitiation. By faith and imputation. Right? All All of that is the work of God. 
Now, how can I come along and say, okay, Bobby, here's what Christ did for you. Now, you better do all of these things because if you don't do all of these things, you're going to prove you were never saved. Well, that means that my, his, his salvation is dependent on what he does and not what Christ did, which is literally contrary to the entire Protestant Reformation and leads you right back to Roman Catholicism. Which you have an initial justification by faith, but then your final justification is dependent upon works. We can't, we can't destroy the entire doctrine of justification to fix James. And I'm arguing that I think we have a solution that doesn't require that. And I think the solution is James is arguing for a justification before men. Because he's not even mentioned justification before God here. That's going to be my argument. All right. Now you can think about that all week and tell me how wrong I am. And all the people listening online, please send your emails to Sarah Danzler. That's who you would like to send your emails to. Uh, she will answer all theological questions um, because I don't want to. All right. Yeah, she's on spring break. She needs something to do, okay? And Joe will help her uh, do the research for the answers because he needs something to do as well. All right, we'll stop there. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. This is not an easy subject, Lord, but we want to understand how to stand justified before you. We want to ensure that we don't add anything to the doctrine of justification. We don't want to take anything away, but we do not want to destroy your entire salvation plan by adding something that does not belong. I pray that you will give us uh, the, the desire to truly search this out, that we will meditate on this all week, and that we will work hard to find an answer. I know this is not the typical typical way of trying to handle this passage, but Lord, I pray that you will at least keep us focused, uh, a burden to study, and most importantly, I pray that we leave here grateful that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of your Son, Jesus Christ alone, and it's in his name we pray. And God's people said,